Please note that this episode contains a depiction of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Price Lab podcast, a series focusing on digital humanities and how scholars got to where they are now. In today's episode, Price Lab fellow Julie Naplin interviews scholar, author, and data visionary Wendy Chun. Chun's current work on digital media draws from her study of systems design engineering and English literature. She is the author of several books, most recently, Updating to Remain the Same, Habitual New Media, published by MIT in 2016. Wendy, it's really great to meet you and speak with you today. It would be great to hear more about how you got from engineering into the humanities, and have they always been intertwined for you? When I was younger, I always wanted to do both the sciences and the humanities. And it was clear that if I wanted to do this, I would have to start in engineering and then take humanities classes. You really can't do it the other way around. Um, But I started really taking humanities classes after the Montreal Massacre. So um, in 1989, when I was in my second year of engineering, a man walked into the classroom, separated the men and the women, and started shooting all the women. And it was a moment of violence I could not comprehend. Because in engineering, you want to believe it's a meritocracy. You want to believe, and, and you're in a classroom with, you know, what feels like 50 brothers and 13 sisters. Um, and so, and there's a way in which you're not able to process some of the biases and the violence around you. And so I turned to the humanities for answers that engineering couldn't give me. Um, I also turned to the humanities and English literature rather stupidly as a way to avoid politics. I thought, you know, in <laughs> academia, especially in English literature, surely there are no politics. Um, so, but increasingly now I find myself reaching back to engineering because I think that in, in order to take on the, the really hard problems that face us, like discrimination, like global climate change, um, we need to work across disciplines and in, in, and in uncomfortable ways. Um, and so... We need to talk to each other and say, look, this is a big problem. I can't solve it. You can't solve it. Um, So how can we take our different kinds of knowledge and methodologies and work together? And you you gave a lecture uh, not too long ago that I'm afraid that I missed. But when I saw the title, um, I was instantly excited by the topic. And uh, it was on the notion of the stuff of social media and specifically around the topic of segregation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the topics that you broached in that lecture. So what's fascinating about current formations of social media networks is that they rely on a concept called homophily. And homophily was developed by two sociologists, Lazarus Felt and Merton, uh, writing in the 1950s, in order to understand different kinds of friendship formation. So they came up with two terms. One is homophily, which is like breeds like, like is attracted to like. And the other is heterophily, which is friendship across difference. The notion of homophily has become de facto 
in social networks. People assume that like breeds like, this is the basis of recommendation systems, this is the basis of many different um, understandings of network clusters. But when Lazarus Felton Merton came up with the term homophily, they said, well, look, there's two terms, and homophily isn't always true. And secondly, they based their study of homophily on segregated neighborhoods, in particular two housing projects, one which was an all-white co-op and another one which was a biracial yet not entirely integrated public housing project. And the notion of homophily, in particular value homophily, comes from the attitudes of white liberals and white illiberals in the biracial housing project towards each other. Um, so it depended on, first of all, the erasure of all the res respondents of black residents. Um, and it has a very, and if you look at the history of homophily and various network algorithms, what's fascinating is that they're very much indebted to and in conversation with studies of U.S. urban space. In your experience studying social media, is there a kind of analog between the way um, people organize themselves in virtual spaces and the way they, they organize themselves in physical spaces, say, for example, in these, these housing environments? Is there an analogy there, or, or, or do you find them to be not analogous at all? Well, they are analogous because there's no way they can't be. Because if you look at the ways in which networks themselves are created and clustered, there's, they assume neighborhoods. Um, they assume neighborhoods of similarity. Um, now, what's interesting is if you study the U.S. residential situation in neighborhood, you get into regulations. And the reasons why there's segregation in the U.S. has everything to do with the federal government and <coughs> other um, banking practices, um, covenants, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a way of understanding why we have the physical networks we have, which is missing um, in a lot of network studies because it just says, oh, we're, we're going to replicate what we see in the physical world and assume that this is so rather than interrogating why. In the case of the example of homophily, it sounds like there was a taxonomy or series of categories created around physical environments that were then imported to describe something that was happening in, in network space. But also to create it, because what's interesting is that homophily within sociology um, has some citations, but not a lot. But then all of a sudden, in the late 20th century, as people started thinking through recommendation engines, homophily took off, and, and this Lazarus Felton Merton article took off, even though clearly no one read it, um, within computer science and economics. And so there's a way it was taken up in order to justify and think through these kinds of recommendation systems. So in a way, uh, what you're saying is that then with these environments and these networks, we are living out in a, uh, the these predeterminations, if you will, and that they were their their premise was essentially already racialized and therefore false from the beginning. Is there for you a, a an angle of a kind of politics or a critique? And where do you think that we, uh, where can designers go from here to resist this kind of categorization? It's really important to understand that homophily is just one option, and that it describes certain phenomena 
certainly, but it doesn't describe everything. So the examples I always use are electricity. Um, bonds go from negative to positive. This is heterophily. Um, the fact that heterosexuality happens is impossible in a world with a high gender homophily, which it's always discussed as. So there's all these examples of opposites attracting. There's also examples of mutual indifference as what's key for, for society. Think of how a subway works or public transportation works in cities. It's because we're all mutually indifferent that this can happen. So what I think is really key is to think through other modes of connection, um, to draw from the humanities, the social sciences, the physical sciences, to come up with more rich possibilities for networks. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, though, it does seem like programmers have been divorced from the humanities, or is that not your experience? Well, I think programmers have become more and more divorced from programming. I mean, what, what programmers do now was not called programming when I was little. It was called scripting. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that there's, uh, I don't think it's necessarily an issue of programming. Um, and if you look at what's happening in the Valley, you know, the the machine, um, uh, the people who really understand machines and hardware and those people are the ones being um, more and more uh, kicked out. And instead, the idea that you have these kids who cannot understand connection is what's key. This takes me back to one of your earlier books, Program Visions. And um, <clears throat> I originally encountered this book because I work in sound. And um, as someone who works in sound, uh, I'm resistant to the idea that there's this kind of neutral window on the world this uh, enlightenment, enlightenment ideal, if you will. And I found that book to be so helpful for thinking about um, possible critiques of, of these neutral windows on the world. And in some ways, some of these enlightenment ideas have really come back with the interface is, is one of the, uh, the central points you make in your book, that we, we think these technologies are neutral, but they're fundamentally not. And I'm wondering... Um, is what you're doing now, uh, would you say it's an extension of, of, of some of these earlier projects of yours in that way? I think what I've always been fascinated by is what we accept as defaults. Um, and defaults are never neutral. Defaults are, and it's strange to me that um, corporate <clears throat> defaults have become our preferences and the move from defaults to preferences is a little strange. I think what's fundamentally key to understand, and this comes from my background in engineering, is that theoretically I can tell you what my phone or my computer is doing at every level, but I can't tell you what it's doing at this moment. That there's something that happens when things execute, the ways things operate, um, that you can't understand. Um, and so for me, I think everyone should have a technical background, not because all of a sudden they will understand everything, but you'll have a sense of what you can't understand. And so that's always been key to me, to, to say, okay, why do we think this is operating this way? Why do we think that a window is a window? Why do we think that <laughs> we understand, you know, WYSIWYG is WYSIWYG? Um, and what needs to go in place in order for that to happen? In the classroom, how do you try to, to impart this to your students? So it's interesting. I taught a very large lecture course at Brown called Digital Media. 
And it's usually the topic that draws students from across disciplines. So I had students in engineering, computer science, the arts, um, modern culture media, um, theater and performance studies. And so I find that just addressing this topic brings together um, a group of students. I also had more creative assignments. Um, so the first assignment was based on uh, Bart's notion of the writerly text. And for a long time, people argued, well, this is hypertext. And so to get them to think through the differences between hypertext and Bart's methodology, they had to take a text and use Bart's method on it um, in the style of a hypertext in order to understand the differences. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating assignment. And over the years, it's incredible what was produced. So in a way, these... Um these very old questions of textuality and what is a text are, are still alive for you even in this in this moment. Oh, they're very much alive. And, and in the course, I started with cyberspace, the move to hypertext, to give the kids a sense of the history of promises that we were given about new media. And it's just fascinating to see them engage with it. Where is your work going now? Um, I'm starting a new group called the Digital Democracies Group. At SFU, and the idea there is to bring together humanists, social scientists, data scientists, and engineers to take on various problems. And I'm currently working on a book called, project called Discriminating Data, which looks at the ways in which identity is both transformed and propagated through algorithms that are allegedly blind to them and are set up to blind ourselves to them. If I can ask you to elaborate on this a little bit more, what does it mean to say that a that an algorithm is blind? Or why, why would someone say such a thing? I don't know why they would. <laughs> it strikes me as false, but yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what, what's their reasoning there? They would say they're blind to race in the sense that they do not have race as an overt factor that's within their algorithm. Now, the argument against it is that there are always proxies for race. So, for instance, um, one important uh, case is around um, Compass, which is used by some U.S. courts to determine the risk of recidivism, and therefore also used by some courts to determine sentencing and parole. Now, it's been shown to be uh, to um, discriminate against racial minorities, but the questions they ask don't necessarily, they don't ask a person's race, but then say something like, oh, have they dropped out of high school? Um, how long have they been? Um, do they have a job or not? Um, other things about, uh, the, which are clearly indicators or proxies, given the unequal society we live in for race. Wow. And is, is, are there also these hidden proxies or unspoken proxies for gender as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can think of... Um, so this, a lot of this, of course, has come to the fore with the work around Cambridge Analytica um, and the ways in which various groups outside of, of Cambridge Analytica, you can think of the work of Kaczynski, for instance, come up with proxies for um, attributes such as intelligence, um, attributes such as heterosexuality. Um, so one... Th for IQ is, um, I forget what exactly it is, but I think it's if you like the group I Love Being a Mom, 
you're far more likely to have a low IQ. <laughs> um, and in terms of male heterosexuality, you're far more likely to be um, heterosexual if you like Wu-Tang Clan and far more likely not to be heterosexual if you like MAC Cosmetics. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a kind of vicious cycle then where the these groups are um, analyzed for these categories but then um, that might be a false analysis. But do those categories then, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this, but do they then replicate in the environments where uh, as if they've been determined by these, by these false assumptions from the outset? They not only replicate, they're actually manipulated to accentuate difference and to um, create really weird forms of of um, politics. So one example uh, to bring out the ways in which this happens is to consider something like alternative medicine sites. They seem pretty banal. You like kale. You you know you go to a website saying you know I I want to look up a homeopathic remedy for my cold. Now what's interesting is that there are alt right websites that are attached to and link themselves to alternative medicine. Because if you think about it, you know, you start off by saying, I like kale, I'm a little suspicious of medical doctors, you know, should I immunize my kids, um, et cetera, et cetera, to, you know, I'm suspicious of authority. So, and the alternative actually becomes a way of linking all these groups together. So what they do is they figure out wedge issues or issues that can move people to consolidate them differently. Yeah, I can see going back to where we were a moment ago, this takes us right back to the signifying chain and a, a kind of intertext. Um, in the wake of all of this, I wonder, do you use social media? Are you hopeful about social media? Or are you just, are you kind of apocalyptic about it? Well, I think we need to change social media because there's very little that's actually social about social media at one level, but at another level, you can say the fact that your preferences are so easy or, or there are certain proxies for you or certain ways in which we can figure out who you are based on the behaviors of others means that your identity is never your identity, that you are actually connected to all these other people and in different ways. And that could be the fruitful basis for politics. This could be the fruitful basis for intervention. And so I think that we can't let social media go, especially since it's become so intertwined in our lives. But I think that there are certainly calls for regulation in terms of what can and cannot happen. I mean, it's interesting what the EU is doing in terms of the recycling or not of data. Um, but I also think that we need to think through the positive aspects of connection um, and to refuse the ways in which we're being shunted, but also therefore ask ourselves what else could happen. And for you, does that mean that social media, to become political, that it uh, galvanizes action in physical space or... Um, you know, what is the realm of action for you? Where is the realm of politics? Where does it exist for you? Well, I think the social media is already political. I think that there there isn't a way in which social media is not political. But I do think the question of action is different than the question of 
the model. So, for instance, the example I always use are global climate change models. And I say, so the, the, the way that a lot of these predictive models work is that they say, based on your past behavior, this is what you're most likely to do. But what you're most likely to do always depends on what your past behavior is. So Netflix, for instance, when they had that huge prize um, where they offered a lot of money and a lot of data to anyone. Who, well, first they offered a lot of data, but then they offered a lot of money <laughs> to anyone who could improve their recommendation system by 10%. The ways in which they determined which algorithms actually improved their recommendation by 10% was based on their past data. So what happened is that these these algorithms really just predict the past. They're tested against the past, and what's always most likely is determined in terms of the past. So if the past is racist, these models will not be verified as correct unless they make racist predictions. Now, if you look at something like a global climate change model, they give us the most likely future. Um, if we keep doing this, this will well, happen. Not so we are like, yes, this is fate, but instead to say, no, we don't want that to happen. So we can actually look at these models as revealing the future that we don't want and as documenting the past that exists. So there's been a lot of controversy over Amazon's use of an AI for hiring. In fact, Amazon no longer uses this system because it was shown to actively discriminate against women. So having women anywhere on your CV meant that you, were, you lost points. Um, so that what so what Amazon really nicely did was document its own discrimination. In thinking about that, and are there ways that you get your students to actively and more critically engage with these kinds of sites that they're using all the time, and that they don't necessarily see as discriminatory? They just see them as bubbles of preferences um, and re reflecting back who they are and and what they are in a kind of authentic way. Ha has that come up in any of your classroom situations? Well, the question of authenticity is really interesting. And the students are really smart because you just have to ask them about their Instagram feed. And they know that it's completely staged. Um, that they, you know, but what they also know is that just because something's staged doesn't mean it's not authentic. And so thinking, and interestingly, authenticity has a theatrical background. So Lionel Trilling in his book, Sincerity and Authenticity, has linked authenticity to the tragic hero, to drama. And so giving them those kinds of tools to understand what they know they themselves are already doing is really intriguing. Mm -hmm. And here's where the humanities come back. And in some ways, it sounds like old school ideology critique, too, and demystification. Yes and no, because I think um, th there is no sense that somehow if you reveal this, then they'll change, right? It's more, we've been living with this, and this is what they're engaging. And it's not as simple as, as revealing something to them that they are, because they already know it. And do you, in teaching this generation who is, you know, native to the digital, do you, do you feel hopeful um, in educating them? I've had wonderful moments in teaching undergraduates. I've been, I think, really lucky. But all the students, for instance, in computer science that I've taught are so craving this 
material and they're so happy to be able to engage with and think through what they're doing. And the kids in the humanities who haven't approached digital media before still have an incredible fluency with it. And they want to understand and deal with and create different forms of media. Well, thanks so much for coming in today. It was great to talk to you, and um, I learned so much about your work. Thank you for having me.